You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's December 16th. In many states, this year's midterm elections brought high voter turnout. While this is a good sign, say Rand experts, it may not necessarily mean that American democracy is on the upswing. Why? Well, voting is a useful, consistent measure of the public's participation in the democratic process, but it doesn't tell a complete story. There are many other important aspects of democracy that affect individual civic participation, including voter laws, civic education opportunities, and trust in government. These are the kinds of things that foster civic engagement well before and after Election Day. Think of them as civic infrastructure. If there were better ways to measure and monitor civic infrastructure, a more complete, albeit more complicated, picture of democracy would likely emerge, our researchers say. And even with just a few pieces of the puzzle, it's clear that access to the opportunities that drive civic outcomes are deeply dependent on where in the country someone lives. Take Wisconsin and Michigan, two states that had among the highest voter turnout in the 2022 midterms. Beyond turnout, there are some serious differences in the civic infrastructure of these two states. For starters, it's easier to vote in Michigan than it is in Wisconsin. Unlike Wisconsin, Michigan has an automatic voter registration law, where people are automatically registered to vote when they get a driver's license or state ID card. What's more, Michigan voters don't need a photo ID, whereas in Wisconsin, voters must produce one when they cast their ballots. Fair representation of voters' preferences also differs between these two states. Michigan voters recently approved a proposal that helped to reduce political gerrymandering and make congressional districts more competitive. In Wisconsin, by contrast, state legislative and congressional lines were chosen by the courts after a lengthy legal battle. And even before Michigan and Wisconsin residents are of voting age, they are likely to experience quite different civic education opportunities. A recent national analysis rated Michigan's K-12 state standards for civics as a B on a letter grade scale, while researchers rated Wisconsin civic standards as an F and recommended a complete overhaul. All these factors, voter registration processes, how state legislative and congressional lines are drawn, and the pathways for building civic literacy in schools can be viewed as, quote, bricks in a state's wall of civic infrastructure. And by monitoring them more closely, rather than looking at voter turnout alone, policymakers could better identify where civic infrastructure is broken and what exactly needs to be repaired. Last month, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un introduced his daughter, Jue, to domestic and international audiences. Kim chose his daughter's first appearance to coincide with a test firing of his country's intercontinental ballistic missile. This was, of course, intentional, says Rand researcher Sue Kim. Notably, Jue's emergence does not necessarily indicate that she will be the next leader of North Korea. There has been no official announcement by the regime. In fact, these public appearances might make the Kim regime's succession plans even less clear. 
Instead, the debut of Kim Jong-un's daughter could be a well-timed distraction to keep the international community from focusing on seeking a solution to Pyongyang's rapidly advancing weapon systems, as the U.S. and South Korea seem to have reached an impasse in negotiations. So far, attempts at diplomacy have produced neither a significant reduction in North Korea's nuclear threat, nor a curbing of the Kim regime's appetite for nuclear blackmail. Here's how Su Kim, the RAND researcher, puts it. Quote, Kim Jong-un simply pockets the political and economic benefits of engagement, all while continuing to build his nuclear empire. Soon after her first appearance, Ju A was in the public again for another photo opportunity, and there may be more in the near future. So while attention should be paid to the regime's portrayal of the young girl for clearer indications of her place in the regime, she is potentially being deployed as a distraction from another, more pressing matter, the tough reality of bargaining with any member of the Kim clan, and its long game of nuclear confrontation. Buprenorphine is a prescription drug used to treat opioid use disorder, which affects millions of Americans. A new RAND study examined how the COVID-19 pandemic affected the use of buprenorphine, particularly in the months right after the declaration of a public health emergency. Our researchers looked at records that captured 92% of prescriptions filled at U.S. retail pharmacies between March 2019 and December 2020. They found that the number of active prescriptions for buprenorphine remained constant during the first year of the pandemic, while the number of new prescriptions was 17% lower than expected. So what might explain the dramatic drop in the number of new prescriptions? One potential factor is the disruptions in the delivery of healthcare during the early parts of the pandemic. In the months following the declaration of the public health emergency, outpatient visits declined more than 50%. The decrease in patients starting buprenorphine treatment is troubling, especially because isolation and stress related to the pandemic contributed to greater rates of drug use and misuse, mental health and substance use disorders, emergency department visits for opioid overdose, and, in 2020, more fatal overdoses than in any prior year. Since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine, India has abstained from nearly every vote to condemn Moscow's actions. India hasn't signed on to economic and financial sanctions against Russia either. According to RAND's Derek Grossman, it should come as no surprise that India isn't breaking its long-standing partnership with Moscow, which dates back to the Cold War. Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his government are pursuing what Grossman calls an ultra-realist foreign policy, one that deprioritizes the legal and moral aspects of international affairs to secure India's own national interests. By refusing to condemn Russia, India receives tangible economic and security benefits, including the ability to purchase heavily discounted oil and continue to access Russian-made weapons for its armed forces. For U.S. policymakers, India's ambiguity has been maddening, largely because they see India as essential to the success or failure of the Indo-Pacific strategy designed to counter China. American officials find themselves asking, if India refuses to uphold the liberal international order with Russia, then how could it possibly be expected to do so with China? But India is not, in fact, abandoning the liberal international order to salvage its relations with Russia, Grossman says. 
In September, Modi rebuked Russian aggression publicly. And just last month, when it appeared that the G20 summit would not agree on a joint statement regarding the war in Ukraine, India reportedly stepped up and helped forge the consensus that enabled the group to issue language mostly condemning Moscow. Also noteworthy, Modi is planning to skip an annual summit with Vladimir Putin, reportedly over Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Most importantly, Grossman points out, India is not a revisionist state. It has overwhelmingly shunned war unless attacked. It has joined the Quad, a multilateral form of like-minded democracies, and it has increasingly been engaged in the promotion of democracy abroad. It's unclear what will happen next, but in May, Modi and President Biden apparently decided to simply agree to disagree about condemning Russian aggression. Since then, the U.S.-India partnership has continued to experience remarkable success. Quote, this is the template Washington might keep in mind going forward, Grossman says. In recent years, China has increasingly used its economic leverage to coerce states into avoiding or changing political or military policies with which Beijing disagrees. These actions have included government-backed boycotts, important export restrictions, limits on tourism, and threats of punishment against specific companies. China's efforts have had mixed success to date, but the costs for U.S. allies and partners in some cases have been substantial, and China appears likely to continue these tactics going forward. If left unaddressed, Beijing's pressure campaigns could create a chilling effect on state decision-making and sovereignty, harming U.S. allies and partners and threatening the free and open international order. In a new paper, RAND researchers suggest a new approach to addressing this problem. They say the U.S. should consider establishing a multilateral body that monitors and responds to Chinese economic pressure. This group would consist of willing partners and allies and would exercise one or more of the following options. Option one, publicly denounce China's actions and call for an end to such behavior. Statements could be issued for most, if not all, cases of Chinese economic coercion. Option two, retaliate economically against China. This could include imposing travel or tourism restrictions, tariffs, or outright bans on Chinese exports. And the third option, support the states that China targets through economic assistance. This might mean subsidizing or increasing purchases of the nation's affected goods, or directly compensating the nation with lost revenue. All three of these options could be implemented, although with varying degrees of ease. A statement denouncing China's actions, for instance, could be issued quickly and would be almost costless, while providing support to victims would have direct economic costs. Historically, the U.S. response to China's economic pressure has been ad hoc. Building a more coordinated response with allies and partners could be worth closer consideration, as it may have a greater chance of deterring coercion by Beijing. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org podcast. This is our last show of 2022. 
Thanks for listening this year. We'll be back in January when we'll ring in 2023 with a special episode, an interview with Rand President and CEO Jason Matheny. Until then, have a safe holiday season and a happy new year.